What do these things have in common? Asking for directions, going to the doctor, talking to your neighbor to get help with some house project. How many, how many husbands just got a little gentle nudge on, on all of those? What about seeking parenting advice? Maybe admitting that your, your marriage is struggling, needs help, or there's some area of sin that you are really struggling with. All of those can be areas that we are reluctant to talk about, to ask for help. Those attitudes start at an early age. We've all encountered, or, or we were, the, the stubborn three- or four-year-old who cries, don't help, I can do this, I don't need your help. Or the, the complaining 13-year-old who says, don't tell me what to do, I've got this, I know. It's not always easy to admit we need help. As Christians, see it in Scripture, we see it frequently that, that we are described in terms of weakness and in need of help, but admitting that and actually acting on it can be a whole nother story. Uh, being willing to say the words, I need help. Being willing to confess, to admit to others that my spiritual life feels empty and dry and, and I need prayer, I need help. Those, those things are hard to do. They rarely come easy. I'm often amazed when I turn to the Psalms and see the the psalmist just so seems to be easily confessing weakness and asking for help. David, in Psalm 70, as he cries out to the Lord, make haste, O God. We would say, that, hurry, hurry, God. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. Tempting to say, well, you look at that, David's in a military situation, maybe facing attack. That's a little different than what I experienced. But, but you get to the end of that, and, and here's the king, the warrior, desperately saying, I am poor and needy. Hurry, Lord. I need your deliverance. Just a clear cry for rescue. We are a needy people. I mentioned to you, um, Paul Miller, his original book on prayer is called A Praying Life, and one of the chapters in that book is Learning to Be Helpless. And I love that chapter title, Learning to Be Helpless, because it, it exemplifies the fact that we typically recoil at the label of helpless. We have to learn to be helpless. And Miller writes in that chapter, he says, I, for one, am allergic to helplessness. I don't like it. I want a plan, an idea, maybe a friend to listen to my problem. This is how I instinctively approach everything because I am confident in my own abilities. This is even true in my work of teaching people about prayer. Even though I lead prayer seminars and wrote a study on prayer up until a year ago, it never occurred to me to pray systematically and regularly for our prayer ministry. Why not? Because I was not helpless. I could manage our prayer ministry on my own. I never said this or even thought it, but I lived it. We can nod in agreement with that, that, that we've all been in, in that place. I got this. I can do this. Helpless is not a badge that we are eager to wear. And yet Romans 8 
teaches us, especially when it comes to praying, that we need help, that we are weak, and our weakness requires the necessity of the help of the Holy Spirit. Just two verses this morning. I'm going to read Romans 8, 26, and 27, and then we'll look at these verses. Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's what we're going to see this morning. First of all, that we are weak and in need of help, especially as it pertains to praying. And second, that the Holy Spirit is wise and intercedes for us. And then at the end of that, I'll give you a couple of of short applications to all of that. But let's start with, we are weak and need help to pray effectively. The word weakness is singular. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, not weaknesses. So it's referring to something in particular. The temptation is to think, well, is this a prayer weakness specifically that he's talking about? It's probably not the case because we've read the prior context. We looked last week at the verses leading up to this, and, and they reminded us that we Even we who are trusting in Jesus Christ know that we live in a fallen world that is broken by the the results of sin, of of God's judgment on man's sin. Our bodies are wearing out. We experience the, the consequences of sin. There is remaining sin within our own flesh. And so all of that combines to be our weakness. We are we are weak. And that's what Paul's referring to here. That the inward groaning that we saw last week in verse 23 that speaks of. Of, of our own longing for the resurrection day, when, when we are ultimately transformed into bodies that are made new, that are transformed then into the image of Christ, that are strong and imperishable as to those that are weak and perishable. Uh, Romans 8, 24 and 25, we saw last week, speaks of one of the active ministries of the Holy Spirit being to teach us to hope to, to impress upon us the hope that we have in God completing this work of redemption and bringing us to that day when we are glorified, when we are made new. And so that's why verse 26 then begins, likewise, the Spirit, because he's, he's just got done saying, the Spirit ministers hope to you. you your, your weakness, your groaning, your longing needs hope. Likewise, the Spirit ministers help to you because of your weakness and you need help. And so the, the Spirit is giving hope to meet your suffering, giving help to meet your weakness, particularly to pray effectively. That's what's then emphasized in verse 26. It's not a weakness necessarily in how we pray or whether we pray, though certainly it could be argued that the Spirit within us also exhorts us to pray. The Spirit wants us to be more like Christ and wants to transform us. And so certainly there's conviction about prayerlessness and an incentive to pray or motivation to pray. Uh, But the real weakness here is in not knowing what to pray. It's the content of our praying that he's speaking about. And that's very clear there in that little phrase in the middle of verse 26 when he says that we don't know what to pray as we ought. So he's saying that there's, we pray and and we pray for things, but we don't, don't always know how to pray as we ought. And he's referring to what he's going to touch on in verse 27, which is praying according to the will of God. Praying as to what God would have us bring as the focus of our praying. As, as you and I grow as believers in Jesus Christ, 
One of the things that should loom larger and larger in our lives is the will of God, is, is trying to know and appreciate and obey what it is that God has willed for us. If you think back to, and, and that's, we'll see that in verse 27, this emphasis on the will of God, but certainly you can think back to Jesus when he's teaching his followers to pray in Matthew chapter 6. And he says, as you pray, you acknowledge relationship. Our Father, Father who art in heaven, you worship in terms of the adoration of his name, hallowed be thy name. And then what's the first thing he prays for in terms of making request? It's thy kingdom come, and then what? Amen. Thy will be done. Right. God, teach me your will. And so Jesus is saying to his followers, as you pray... Make that earnest in your praying that, God, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my life, as you would have it to be. There are plenty of areas where we, we know explicitly what God's will is, where we're not confused about the will of God. I know that I should love God with my whole being in, in, in worship and in service. I know that I should love my neighbor as myself. I, I know when I'm missing that mark. I know that this is what God has willed, and I can also see when I am failing at that. I know that I am called to be humble as, as Christ was humble, to follow after his pattern. I, I know that I am to use my words to build others up, to, to speak exhortation and encouragement. I am to pursue purity. I am to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiven. I, uh, forgiving. I don't have to ask God, should I be kind to this person? I know from Scripture that I am to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. That, that's God's will. Those are clear statements. But there's also those areas where it's hard for me sometimes to discern God's specific will for my life in situations, especially when there's choices to be made. And they both seem like viable choices, not unbiblical choices, situations that may involve a job. Do I, do I take this job? Do I, do I move my family to this place because of this job? Do I, do I marry this person? Is this the, the, the one? And, and there are biblical principles that inform all of these things. It's clear from Scripture that I want to know, can I honor the Lord in this job? Is this job going to provide so that I can meet my own needs in terms of providing for my family? That's a biblical principle. Will it, uh, in marrying this person, is this person a believer in Jesus Christ? Just all biblical principles that apply. Scripture is not silent on these things. But nonetheless, I still don't have chapter and verse that said, marry Robin. Um, be a pastor in Lorton, Virginia. I, I can't point to a verse on that. And so that's where it's this question of discerning what God's will is in situations, trying to, to pray according to his will. Maybe it's a health issue for you or someone you know. And even there you're struggling with, I, I know what my heart's desire is, but I'm not sure if my desire is even right in this situation. Am I asking the Lord to heal me or give me strength to endure or both? Sometimes we struggle with what to pray. There's those times when things happen that I don't fully understand, and I'm trying to discern. What, what, God, what are you teaching me in this? What is it I'm supposed to be gaining through this situation? And you may be in one of those groaning experiences, like verse 23, where just the effects of a fallen world are described, and your, your prayers are questions and pleas before God just not knowing fully what to ask for even, what, what wisdom it is that you're seeking. You can, you can think of Job and Job's why questions. Job even to the, the place of saying, Lord, I, 
I'm starting to think I shouldn't have been born in the first place if, if this was going to be the outcome. Um, what are you doing? Uh, Job it says things like, God, have you, why have you made me your target? Am I a burden to you? And so Job's just struggling. Here's a, here's a righteous man at a loss to know what to pray because he's just surrounded by these circumstances that, that seem so incomprehensible. And add to all of that this, what we've talked about, our inherent weakness, the fact that we have hearts that can still be deceived, the fact that we have desires that can still have the capacity to overwhelm us, and the fact that we are finite human beings. It all means that we are trying to discern the Lord's will and trying to figure out how then to pray, what to pray for. And that's what then brings us to this sweet assurance in Romans 8.26 that the Holy Spirit is wise and intercedes on our behalf. Verse 26 says the Spirit helps us through intercession. That word for helps always has that great picture of coming alongside with aid. It is a reminder to you and I that in our darkest moments when we are, when we are crying out to God, unsure perhaps how to pray, but, but pleading in some way, we are not alone. The Holy Spirit helps us. He is present with us. He is right there with us as we pray. One commentator put it this way. He says, far from being unaware of our troubles, at that very moment, the Spirit is entreating or petitioning God more deeply than we ever could. Far from being an uncaring God, the Spirit is groaning along with us. Something I'm doing? or um, Verse 26 speaks of the Spirit interceding with groans too deep for words. No small speculation about the meaning of that phrase. Groanings too deep for words. We've seen groaning before, um, twice already in this passage. The groaning of creation, the sense that, that the whole creation is awaiting the glorification of believers in Jesus Christ because it is not all that it could be. It is decaying. It is experiencing the bondage to corruption. And so the creation is, as it were, sort of lamenting together for that day. And then verse 23 is described believers inwardly groaning with this longing for God to complete his work of redemption in us and bring us to that point when we are glorified and made like Christ. And so verse 26, this kind of language is now attributed to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit with groanings. Linguistically, we can connect all of these, groanings in creation, groaning of believers, the Spirit's intercession with groaning. And yet there's clearly something different. Creation is groaning because creation has no ability to control this. There, there's, as the passage said, that the creation was subjected to futility by God. It was because of the curse of sin that creation is decaying. Creation is groaning, but it cannot change its own sort of circumstances. The believer groans because we're longing for something we cannot see. We, we have this expectation that we are we are in Christ, but we don't have the fullness of what it means to be like Christ, and that is still to come, and so we groan. The Spirit is not in the dark about these things. The Spirit does not share any of those qualities where it's sort of incomplete or inadequate or unsure of what lies ahead. So in what way does it mean that the Spirit is groaning? Well, first of all, think about it this way. The, the language is at least somewhat metaphorical. In other words, when we see that creation groans, we don't 
We don't actually hear that. We don't hear creation groaning. We're told from scripture that creation is experiencing this sense of decay and this longing. Likewise, the groanings of believers in verse 23 are described as inward. We hear our sighs, our, our moaning sometimes, but, but he describes these groanings as inwards. It's sort of something that we know is happening within us, this yearning that's not necessarily audible. And so in verse 26, when he says, the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, what is it that he's saying there? In our language, when you want to negate something, sometimes you'll put the prefix anti, A-N-T-I, in front of it so that you're pro or you're negative, you're anti that. In the Greek, you would simply put the letter alpha, the A, in front of something, and that would negate it. And so when Paul, when it speaks of too deep for words, he's using a very common Greek word for speak, leleo, just to, to speak, to audibleize in some way and putting A in front of it. So he's not speaking, at least in a way that's, Audible. It could be that the Spirit is not making a, a sound. The point seems to be this. We know the Spirit is interceding, because that's what the passage describes. That means He is speaking for us to God the Father. He is in some way communicating to the Father on our behalf. That's intercession, but not in words that we hear. So let me clarify one thing that this is not, because it's a common interpretation out of this passage. This is not a reference to what some might call a prayer language. They would say that if you look at the various spiritual gifts, that in the gift of tongues, that one of the things may be a, a praying that may not be audible or understandable, clearly understandable, but God hears it and God understands. We could talk more about spiritual gifts and the gifts of tongues, but we won't do that this morning for the sake of time, among other things. But that's not what's happening here. And the reason I say that is because spiritual gifts very plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are distributed among the body. There are various gifts given, a variety of gifts it speaks of, that God appoints, that God gives out to members of the body with the idea that not everybody has all the gifts in fact, it, we know at least we have one manifestation of the Spirit, so we have one gifting at least. But the idea is that we need each other, and so corporately we're gifted so that we can serve together. What he's talking about here in Romans 8.26 is referring to the universal experience of believers. He's not talking about a gifting that goes to an isolated group of believers. He's saying that all believers need this kind of intercession. We are all weak and in need of help from his spirit. And so this groaning, whatever it is, is applying to the whole body. I would suggest to you the plainest reading of Romans 8.26 is that it is the spirit who is groaning. Now again, we say groaning makes sense for creation. It makes sense for me. But, but the spirit of God, why would he groan? Because I think what we're seeing here is the Holy Spirit identifying with the children of God and with our weakness and with our longing to be set free from these bodies, our longing for ultimate glorification. The Holy Spirit is, is identifying compassionately with us who live in bodies that are ravaged by the consequences of sin. We know that the Spirit plants that desire in us and has compassion for us. Maybe a good picture of this to, to help you think about this is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. When Jesus weeps, he's not weeping 
because he's powerless in that situation, he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's weeping as a result of the consequences of sin ravaging people that he loves. And he's, he's experiencing compassion for their grief as they experience this moment of loss. And he is weeping along with them. And in the same way, the spirit in these groanings too deep for words is, is not some impersonal sort of mechanical activity where he's just simply translating our, our prayers and just doing it sort of mechanically. There's a deep intimacy to this. Think that this is not, here, here's maybe one way to think about this with the Holy Spirit. This is not like your Google Translate app where you speak something into it and it puts it into the language that you wanted and hopefully correctly translates what you said, say to the other person who's listening. That this is not the Holy Spirit sort of mechanically saying, Father, Doug has prayed for this. He's wrong again. So let's make it this. Here's the correct prayer that Doug should be praying at this point. That's not what, it, it, the idea is that the, the Spirit is a work that is very personal and intimate in that he is taking the, the ignorance of our own heart sometimes and compassionately bringing it to the Father in accord with the Father's will. The Holy Spirit hears you and cares for you and takes the burdens that you're praying about and brings them to the King in words that not only reflect genuinely your heart, but are in agreement with the will of the King. It's a beautiful assurance of the Spirit just doing a deep and personal work within us. It's what reminds us that Romans 8, 9 has said the Spirit was, is within the believer. He is within our very soul, and, and it is his desire then to conform even our praying to the will of God. Commentator Doug Moo put it this way. Our failure to know God's will and consequent inability to petition God specifically and assuredly is met by God's Spirit, who himself expresses to God those intercessory petitions that perfectly match the will of God. When we do not know what to pray for, yes, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, we need not despair, for we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. That's the Spirit interceding for us with groans too deep for words. We need that help, and the Holy Spirit is uniquely wise to do that. Verse 27 describes two things connected to this intercession that show us the wisdom of God in all of this. It says that God searches our hearts. Verse 27 emphasizes, it's talking about the Father. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God searches our hearts, and the Spirit knows God's will. Our, this intercession of the Holy Spirit for God's people is effective because of the perfect harmony that exists within the Trinity between Father, Son, and Spirit. And in particular here, he's emphasizing the relationship between Father and Spirit. The Father sees our hearts and desires at the very level where the Holy Spirit is working within us, helping to change our desires and transform us. And so the Father sees that and we are also an open book before the Creator. There's, there's nothing that He doesn't know about us. Our lives are transparent before Him. But the Spirit then also, who is working within us, is completely aligned with the will of the Father. And so not only are our desires and expressions known by God, but the Spirit now is able to, to bring those in perfect alignment, perfect accord with the will of the Father. So that means even 
when we don't get the specific answer to prayer that we asked for, the Holy Spirit is still pleading on our behalf in perfect accord with the will of the Father to give us what is best for us according to our Father, to give us according to His will. Philippians 2 sort of describes this process to us in a slightly different way, but the same point in that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it says in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's another description of exactly what the Spirit is described as doing in Romans 8. In our weakness, in our ignorance, in our pain, when sin is still corrupting our desires, we still have an intercessor who is praying on our behalf, who is pleading to the Father in accord with his will. So we who are weak in need of help have the Holy Spirit who is wise and provides for us. So what does that mean for you and I in terms of application? I, want to, I just want to give you two brief applications of all of this. The one is first, desire God's will. And the second one is pray. I know that one seems obvious, but it's worth talking about in a moment. At the heart of, of, of this is what we, we saw Jesus teaching in prayer. Pray for God's will to be done. Pray for, for God to carry out what he is to do. And so when approaching God in prayer, one of my chief desires should be for his will. So as I come to God in prayer, I won't always get it right but my aim should be, Lord, do your will. Lord, help me to obey your will. Lord, help me please to be content with what your will is. Here's what I desire. Your will, though, is paramount, so please help my heart to be satisfied with your will. That's what Jesus shows us in his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? As he pleads before the Father and is about to face this terrible hour when his eternal communion, perfect communion with the Father is about to be stopped while the Father pours out his wrath on our sin. And Jesus pleads and says, my Father, if, if it's possible, please cause this cup to pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Same instruction that's given in James 4.14 to learn to say, if the Lord wills. The, the Holy Spirit's Intercession is to bring my praying in line with God's will, and so submission to God's will should be important in my thinking. The Holy Spirit's ministry here is a blessing, and I should be grateful for that intercession. But what Jesus taught and what the Holy Spirit ensures should be the growing desire of my heart as, as best as I can. Lord, I want to pray in accord with your will. I want to know your mind as best I can, and I want to obey that. The, the counter of this is true, and this is probably what, what hits home for us sometimes in, in, in our praying. If I, am, if I am doing something that is contrary to what I know to be the will of God, I'm not to be going to God in prayer saying, Lord, would you bless this? Lord, would you just make this okay in some way? Lord, this is really a desire that I have, and, and I just, I'm asking you to fulfill it. Even though we, we know going in, this is really not the will of God. I, I can see this clearly that this relationship or this opportunity or whatever it is that I'm doing does not seem to be the will of God. Now I'm praying for God to somehow sanctify it in some way. What I probably need to do in that moment is to be repenting 
and starting in prayer by saying, Lord, I know what your will is, and I am not content with it, and I am struggling with it, and I ask for your forgiveness. If I, if I know God's will and my flesh is craving something contrary to it, I need to be praying for God's help. I need to be praying for his spirit to work in me, to be changing my heart. I need to be praying that I'd be open to his community helping me and coming alongside and changing that desire within me so that I would obey him. So desire God's will and second, pray. I know this, this one seems really obvious, but I think there's a danger in that we would wrongly interpret Romans 8, 26 and 27 as saying prayer is almost unnecessary. Because what I've got here is the Holy Spirit. God the Father already knows my heart. The Holy Spirit is at work in my heart. And he's interceding for me. And he's, he's making my prayers to be in line with God's will. So I'm kind of at that point sort of tempted to just outsource my praying to the Spirit. Just do this for me. You, you know what I need. So I don't need to pray. I'll just let you do the work for me. That would be a wrong implication from these verses. In Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching about prayer, three different times as he's instructing about prayer, he leads it off by saying, when you pray. Not if you pray or, you know, thinking about praying. No, he's assuming that you are praying. He's assuming that you and I, as followers of his, are praying. And the reason that he's assuming that is because it's what he modeled for us. If we're going to be like him and be his followers, then we're going to look at his life and see Jesus is frequently praying. The Gospels report that it was common for him to, to go aside to pray. Luke 5, 15 and 16 summarizes Jesus' public ministry like this. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. See how contradictory that is according to human logic? But as he is growing in fame, and as the crowds are increasing, as the opportunities for ministry are expanding, Jesus is going away more often even to desolate places and praying. That the, the very one, the, the Messiah sent from heaven, the eternal Son of God, needs to move aside and pray and have communion with his father. And even when the, the darkest moment of his life approached, the night before his crucifixion, Luke twenty two forty four says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through suffering, or conflict, or temptation, I'm not sure that that's the line that characterizes being all the more in fill in the blank, he prayed more earnestly. Those are the things that tend to distract me. When the suffering comes, when the hardship comes, when the temptation, when the conflict, my mind tends to get consumed with how do I deal with this? How do I fix this? How do I go through this? Answering, trying to answer all the questions. And, and what scripture says is Jesus modeled for us deepening his own communion with the Father, praying that much more earnestly. Rather than being distracted by suffering, Jesus is deep, driven deeper into prayer. And, and remember, this is the one, this is the eternal Son of God who is fully knowledgeable of the eternal plan of redemption, that, that all of this would come to that focal point of history when he would be crucified for the sins of people. And, and so none of this is mystery to him, and yet he still, in, in that foreordained, having all of that known to him, understands that he must pray. 
he must go before his father and have communion with him. If the son of God frequently made time to be alone in prayer with his father, how much more do you and I in our weakness need to pray? All throughout Romans 8, we've been seeing these glorious truths of God's redemptive work of Christ's death and resurrection, the sending of his spirit, the faithfulness of God, the adoption of children as his own, the the sacrifice of Christ to um, satisfy the righteous requirement of the law, all of that. All of this good work, as, as, as Pastor Stewart has reminded us, to motivate our pursuit of the family image of God. The Spirit is at work in us to fix our minds on the things of the Lord, to help us think more like Christ, to help us think on God's truth, to incite us to be ruthless about uprooting the sin in our own lives. The Spirit is there to empower us in a way that is pleasing to God. The the Spirit is there to call us into communion with God, that we would pray and ask for his help to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live in a manner that is pleasing. We celebrated just a few minutes ago in communion the remembrance of the death of Jesus Christ, what he did on our behalf when he died on the cross. But communion is also symbolic of the intimacy of our fellowship with Christ. We don't merely hold the bread and the cup up and say, see these objects, this body, blood of Christ, and then put them away. We, we eat the bread and we drink the cup as Christ designed so that we would gather that picture of Christ pouring his life into ours, of, of that union that we have with Christ and being joined with him. We commune with the Lord. And that kind of communion, we do it once a month here corporately, but that kind of intimate communion is, is what we are to be having on a regular basis through our meditation on his word and having him speak to us and by praying, us crying out to him, groaning to him if need be, praising him, hearing his voice and then responding in prayer and acknowledging that we are childlike in our dependence on him. And so we plead for help and wisdom and strength. This this world belongs to our great God the creator, the sovereign. All things are held together by the power of his son, Colossians says. And yet the mighty king of all of creation says to us, come to me and say, Abba, Father, in relationship with me and and speak to him. Come into his presence and speak to him. Listen, I know the reality of prayer sermons. I I know what happens as you hear this, some of you, some of you are prayer warriors and you pray fervently and regularly and you're saying, amen, this is awesome. Thank you. Pray for me because I'm like a lot of us here this morning who when we we look at passages like this and we hear sermons like this, there is this flood of guilt that comes that says, "I, I know this and I don't pray enough. I come to you as a a brother in Christ who's spent all week meditating on this passage and coming away from it time and time again going, how do I manage to lack so in prayer when this is so clear? So can I remind you that in those instances, the, the response 
that would be overwhelmed with shame and that would then be tempted to draw back from God in that shame is from Satan. Satan wants you from a sermon like this, from a passage like this to say, man, that's not me. It's not ever going to be me. I don't do this and I feel horrible. And, and so I just withdraw. That is Satan wanting to just cut off you from the father and, and, and to just stop your communion with him. Because in his word, in, in the very passage in James 4, when he speaks about fleeing from the devil, resist the devil and he will flee, James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We've been through James before. We know that's, that's a passage to believers just like you and I who struggle with partiality and sinful desires and all of the things that they are going through. And there's God saying, would you just draw near to me? Don't, don't buy the lie that you should, in your shame, go away. Your heavenly father loves you and he calls you to draw near to him in your weakness, to come before him and pray. Let's pray. In fact, let me, as, as we pray, I'm just going to be silent for a little bit here and just give you time to just personally a, a, apply what we've been talking about. So I'll just be quiet and let you spend some time in communion with your father. Heavenly Father, the hymn writer said it well when he said, what a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Lord, we, we are reminded again from Scripture of what a gift prayer is, that the sovereign of the universe hears his people and their cries, that as believers are praying all around the world, as believers are gathered for corporate worship, as they are crying out to you that that in a way that we cannot even comprehend, you hear your people. and You desire that communion with us. Thank you for the, the gift that prayer is. Thank you that we can echo the words of David and say, please hurry, Lord, and deliver me. Help me. I am poor and needy. Thank you, Lord, that you don't scoff at us when we acknowledge our weakness that you don't dismiss us, but rather that you call us to come to you in our weakness. Father, I pray if there's anyone listening this morning here or online who is struggling with just this kind of closeness to you, can't even imagine what it's like to be able to approach the God of the universe, would, would you today help them to see that our, our whole basis for being able to do this is because of what what Jesus did in interceding for us and being our mediator and, and the sinless one taking our sin on himself so that on the cross he might bear the wrath of the Father, the punishment for sin, so that all who fully trust in Jesus and embrace him as Savior would then know forgiveness, would experience eternal life, 
would experience the joy of communion with the Godhead. Lord, we come before you as a needy people. Help us, help us as believers in our interactions with one another to be unashamed in terms of asking for help. Help us to be a people who, who embrace the, the asking of help for prayer. Help us to, to look for the prayers of other saints. Help us to be a people who are not proud, but who humbly come before you and in weakness ask for you to do what only you can do in changing our heart and its desires. Lord, thank you for pouring your grace out on us and, and, and drawing us to yourself. As we lift our voices in song now, we do so as a thankful people, praising you for your son's sacrifice, your spirit's intercession on our behalf, and your great and mighty glory and the fact that we can call you Father. We do that in the name of the Son, Jesus. Amen.